As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. My first name is Linda, L-I-N-D-A, last name Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R. Let's start just by talking a little bit about Kelly. Tell us about your daughter. Goodness. What would you like to know about her? I mean... (laughs) What do you think are the important things? That she was one of the most fun people that ever walked. (laughs) When she had a birthday, she would then tell you what day of the week her birthday was going to be the following year so that we would not forget it. (laughs) She was just a month shy of 50. She was 49. We were going to throw her a fantastic party. (laughs) Kelly loved everything. Kelly made our holidays. She still believed in everything, so... That was hard, our first Christmas without her, because there were no presents from Santa Claus. Kelly was almost 50 years old when we lost her, but she was four years old. She was just a sweetie. Believe it or not, she had brain damage from lack of oxygen when she was born, and that's what killed her. Kelly was living in a group home, and we have always had problems with Kelly eating too fast, not chewing enough, too big of bites. So staff knew that she couldn't be alone, and they went out on the patio and left Kelly in the house by herself. And she proceeded to get into the bagels, and she had time to put peanut butter on them. And she ate them, and she choked. What was that process like to pursue civil litigation? Because I I know that that can be a a really strenuous thing physically and emotionally. It was a very emotional thing. It was still new. You're constantly reliving it. It's, It's hard. What did that process do for you and do for Kelly? It gave Kelly some justice. I just felt like, I felt like a load had been lifted off my shoulders. I can't bring her back. Nothing is going to bring her back. I don't believe in frivolous lawsuits at all. I can't stand them. But for people not to be able to pursue some kind of justice for their loved ones, that's just wrong. I'm sure it's kind of jarring to think that if this situation with Kelly had happened under during these times, you wouldn't have been able to, to bring that civil litigation. And that's wrong. Wisconsin Act 185, the state's COVID-19 response law, was sweeping legislation that passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. But in the flurry of activity, it was easy to miss a last-minute change. Lawyers say that change prevents people, like Linda Berger, from taking medical negligence cases to court. Healthcare advocacy groups say those concerns are overblown. 
From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire here with my colleague Brian Polson. Hi, Brian. Hey, good morning. Another under blanket record party. <laughs> Another under blanket record party. We, of course, are recording remotely from our homes because we are social distancing and we're still trying to bring you new episodes of Open Record each day, Monday through Friday, to make it easier to sort through this bombardment of coronavirus news. This episode being recorded on Wednesday morning, April 22nd, Earth Day, they say. We spent a lot of time, of course, over the past few weeks talking about uh, Wisconsin's new COVID-19 response law. The legislative process moved much faster than usual here because this is an emergency situation. And Amanda, you started looking into a tip that there was a substantial last minute change to that bill that pretty much went unnoticed before it was signed into law. And Brian, I was originally pretty skeptical of that tip. We had been following the legislation closely. We saw proposed amendments with big changes get struck down. But this particular issue was about civil liability immunity for health care providers. So civil liability immunity sounds like a mouthful. What is that? Essentially, if a hospital or nursing home is negligent or you believe they were negligent, you can usually bring them to court with a civil lawsuit. Civil liability immunity protects health care providers from those lawsuits. And there was broad support for granting that immunity for COVID-19 response. That's because this is a new disease. It's not like there are hard and fast rules or standards for treatment. And that, of course, leaves room for error. So Wisconsin's legislation included a provision for COVID-19 immunity so that we can protect those health care workers who are using unprecedented but potentially life-saving measures. Even the lawyers who usually sue the hospitals and nursing homes were on board with this. It's perfectly reasonable to have immunity for healthcare providers and workers who are, you know, doing the emergency care in this pandemic. I mean, they're heroes, they're doing God's work, and I completely understand that. You know, we want to protect the frontline people. We want to protect the doctors that are using medications that may be quite out, you know, a new protocol. And the original provision was designed to protect those healthcare providers on new information related to COVID-19. So that first voice you heard was Jeff Pittman and the second was Mark Thompson. Both are attorneys at different firms who focus on nursing home negligence, medical malpractice, personal injury. They say they were shocked when they saw what actually became law. In the healthcare immunity section, the specific references to COVID-19 response were removed. They interpret that to mean that healthcare providers have immunity from almost anything while we're under this state of emergency, even if the treatment has nothing to do with COVID-19. If they drop your mom and she's injured or she's killed, total immunity. If they give your dad the wrong medication or they don't give him a medication and it kills him, total immunity. That's what's repugnant about this. It's you can't take advantage of this pandemic to self-serve or to protect your own pocketbook. All right, so the attorneys you just heard from or that we just heard from are both attorneys who sue nursing homes and they sue other people. But obviously, one of the things they do is they sue nursing homes when there are allegations of negligence. So you can imagine that they have a vested interest here in the ability to keep doing that. But you say they were on board in the beginning with the idea of granting this immunity uh, during this emergency time 
for situations involving specifically COVID-19, their concern is that that language has not being removed has now broadened this out to all sorts of healthcare situations that have nothing to do with COVID-19. Is that right? And that is what they say their concern was. And I flat out asked them about their financial interest in this, because the reality is every party involved has a financial interest. The healthcare providers don't want to get sued. The attorneys want to be able to sue. It's it's how they get their money. Now, they say that this COVID-19 specific response, if that provision had remained the same, they would be fine with that because they think that it's reasonable. And even Mark Thompson, one of those attorneys, was saying he was reading the language of the bill an hour before it passed. And at that point, it still had language that he was comfortable with. So I wanted to see what exactly happened to this bill. And sure enough, about an hour before the bill passed, Speaker Robin Voss introduced the Fourth Amendment, the Fourth Assembly Amendment to the bill. And that amendment, in part, when you go through all of it line by line, it deletes phrases from that immunity section that say things like, in response to a 2019 novel coronavirus outbreak, or relating to the 2019 novel coronavirus pandemic. And so what that appears to do is what Mark and what Jeff were concerned about. It takes out those specific provisions, and it appears to broaden the language of the bill. So at that point, I wanted to see what healthcare providers had to say about this. All of the health systems either didn't respond or they declined an interview opportunity. Several referred me to the Wisconsin Hospital Association and the Wisconsin Medical Society, and I was able to do an interview with the Wisconsin Medical Society. Wisconsin Hospital Association sent me a statement. But even those two advocacy groups had different interpretations of what that final language in the bill actually meant. So how were those interpretations different between the Hospital Association, and the Wisconsin Medical Society. Wisconsin Medical Society, we spoke to the CEO, Bud Chumbly. I kind of dispute with you that it has significant changes from the original language. There's a word here and there. We debated that, but I think the intent is consistent with the original language. Any idea why the language specific to COVID-19 was eliminated if the intention was to keep this specific to COVID-19? No, I'm not really sure that it was. He maintains that this language in the bill is specific to the treatment of COVID-19. As a physician, I think this gives me very good uh, guidelines and guardrails of what I'm able to do under this legislation. He points to the limited time frame, the references that this happens during the state of emergency. Uh, he says that there are provisions in there, and, and he's right. When you look at it, it says this immunity does not apply if there is intentional misconduct or reckless conduct. And he thinks that pretty much covers it and still leaves the door open for people to bring this to court. At least that's what he told us. Now, the attorneys involved point out that in the legal world, reckless conduct is a very different thing than negligence. Most of their cases are about negligence, and reckless is a harder issue to prove because you basically have to go and talk about what someone's intentions were during an incident. Sure, negligence is a much lower standard that doesn't require that sort of proof of what was in somebody's mind 
Exactly. It's just this happened. It shouldn't have happened. And this was the result. Whereas reckless, you have to show it's kind of the example I was given um, by several attorneys was if you pull up to a red light and you make the decision you're going to blow the red light, you can reasonably guess that there's a good chance someone's going to be coming through the intersection and there's a probability an accident will happen. That would be reckless. Whereas if you're up coming up to a red light and you're distracted and you don't see it and you wander into the intersection, that would be negligence. In both cases, someone's at fault, but the standard of proof for what someone's intention was, that can be trickier to play out in court. Wisconsin Medical Society says, you know what, bases are covered. We still think this is pretty limited to COVID-19. Wisconsin Hospital Association sent me a statement essentially acknowledging that the scope of this does go beyond COVID-19 treatment. And I do want to read you a line from that. So this statement says, Healthcare providers are broadly responding to this COVID-19 public health emergency. Wisconsin Act 185 recognizes the unprecedented challenges in delivering health care during this pandemic and how that affects all types of care, not just treatment for COVID-19 patients. Wisconsin policymakers understand this and pass the temporary liability standard with overwhelming bipartisan support. So what I'm hearing there, yeah, the difference between the two is you've got one saying it doesn't really change anything, whether that language was there or not. But the other is saying, yeah, it does. And there was good reason for it. Yes. And those are two advocacy groups that are essentially advocating for medical professionals and for healthcare providers. So I thought it was interesting that they had different interpretations of that final language. I asked Bud Chumbly, the Wisconsin Medical Society CEO, Okay, if the language didn't really change the intention of this bill or the meaning of this bill, why make the changes, right? If striking out the references to coronavirus treatment isn't really going to change the overall interpretation, what's the point of doing it in the first place? Why pass the amendment? He said he's not a lawyer. He's not going to get into the legal interpretation. He said they were peripherally involved in the language of the bill, but that it'd have to ask state lawmakers. And I did. I, I sent messages to Speaker Robin Voss, Senate Majority Leader Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, I sent messages to Department of Health Services spokespeople to see how they're interpreting this language, and no one responded. So we don't know what the intention was, at least from the mouths of the people who actually pushed forward this legislation and signed off on it. Uh, But we do know that right now there are very different interpretations, and that can lead to a world of confusion for someone like a Linda Berger, who you heard at the beginning of this episode, who doesn't have an issue right now, but is very concerned that if her daughter's death happened during this crisis, that she would not have been able to bring a case. And that really upsets her. Well, if you go back prior to this emergency, this health emergency prior to COVID-19, These groups, the Wisconsin Hospital Association and Medical Society and trial lawyers like Mark Thompson and Jeff Pittman, they've long been at odds with each other. And there's always been this tension and push and pull between just how much ability should someone have to sue healthcare providers 
for mistakes, whether they are negligence or they rise to the level of some sort of intentional, reckless or willful conduct. That's always been there. And then on the other side, you have the the, the, the healthcare providers and their societies that are saying, look, you've got to be able to do your job without fear that you're going to be bankrupted because of an honest mistake. We're in an emergency situation. And, and as you said, it seems like all sides agreed there's a reasonable uh, thought here that you don't want providers, especially treating a brand new uh, disease caused by a brand new virus um, with uncertain standards to fear that in the process of doing this, they're going to they're going to do some unintentional harm and then they're going to lose their own livelihoods. So that makes sense. The question is whether or not this removal of the specific coronavirus language unnecessarily broadens this because does this now give sort of a blanket protection through July, I think it is, of this year that this thing will last for sort of any sort of healthcare mistake? And does that mean it's harder? If something happens, this is really what this whole thing comes down to. If this happens to your loved one or to you, something bad happens and it has nothing to do with COVID-19. Has this change in the law just prevented you from getting some sort of justice for what happened? And that's the big question. And that is the debate right now, especially keep in mind, we're in a time when people can't go into nursing homes or long term care facilities to see their loved ones because of the coronavirus restrictions. So people are already on edge about that and they're worried about the care or potentially lack of care their loved ones are receiving. And now they're in a situation where it's unclear if, if something happens, if you have issues that have been ongoing, if there is a medication error that doesn't have anything to do with COVID-19, will you be able to bring that case to court? And for the people who bring those cases to court, of course, there is a financial component to this, right? If you get a settlement, you are getting money. But for a lot of those people who are going through that process, they see it as getting justice for their loved one, but they also see it as discouraging the kind of behavior that happened to their loved one. They're hoping through that process that it will make it safer for future people who potentially could have gone through the same kind of error, but maybe people will be more focused on getting things right if there's a level of accountability. So that's the argument you hear from the people who would want to bring these suits from the attorneys. When you're talking about medical professionals, and I really wish the health systems had participated in this story because I would have loved to speak directly to a doctor or a nurse on the front lines of this because their policies are are constantly changing. There are situations that pop up that aren't necessarily directly related to COVID-19, but could be indirectly related to COVID-19. Brian, you and I were talking before we started recording about the idea of elective surgeries. Right now, those aren't directly related to COVID-19, but they're being treated differently because of this pandemic. So if something happens in those cases, what do we do? In looking at what other states have done, I haven't yet seen another state that has language that appears to be as broad as Wisconsin. So other states that are going through and granting these immunity provisions, they're either making it clear it is specific to COVID-19 or specific to situations directly or indirectly related to COVID-19, if you want to give it a little more wiggle room. There's a combination of executive orders and legislation there. But I haven't yet seen one that took out that 
phrase that says that the immunity needs to be for treatment that in some way is in response or related to COVID-19. I was thinking of situations that could arise that may not be directly related, but that might apply. And I, I do think of nursing homes in particular. We're hearing so much about because families aren't able to go to the nursing home to see their loved ones now because visitors aren't allowed. In many cases in the past, family members have actually given some of the care that the actual healthcare providers on staff just weren't able to do because they're already short of staff in so many nursing homes. They're already overworked and, and the pay is not very good for many of these uh, frontline nursing home workers. So they're already stressed and strapped. Now you've removed that family assistance. So they may even be further stressed in trying to keep up with this. And then they're facing the potential for spreads inside some of these facilities. So could it well be that a mistake is made because you've got an overworked, overstressed uh, healthcare worker in an understaffed facility? It has nothing directly to do with COVID-19, but it's a result of the circumstances that were created by it. And is one view that you say, well, that person's doing the best they can under the circumstances we shouldn't be holding them accountable for honest mistakes. Is that one of the arguments here? Th that certainly could be one of the arguments. Now, the the people I've spoken to uh, who have been involved in legislation in these other states, they believe that their language gives that wiggle room for someone to go to court and say, hey, actually, this was related to COVID-19. But the issue can then be more fleshed out in detail in court and People still have their rights preserved to bring that civil suit in the first place. Of course, the healthcare providers don't like that because when someone brings a civil suit, you still have to spend money to defend it. And in this case, uh, especially when we're talking about lawsuits against healthcare providers, I think it's important to say we're usually talking about the owners in this case. So we're not talking about the individual doctor or the individual nurse or the individual CNA having to go to court on their own dime to defend their name or defend their livelihood. It's the ownership company that is taking on that liability. So when you look at the wording with other states, they've still managed to make it, Connecticut is one I'm thinking of, or New York, they've still managed to make it specific to COVID-19, but leave a little bit of that wiggle room. When you look at Wisconsin's statute, it's not a matter of whether there's wiggle room to make that argument. The lines that are specific to COVID-19 are deleted. They're gone. So regardless, I think it is going to be an interesting court situation if something happens during this time and someone wants to bring a suit. We'll see if it if it gets dismissed. But certainly there are cases where something not directly related to COVID-19 might be a concern. The question is whether the wording of this legislation actually addresses that or whether it creates this broad-based immunity. And I'm getting conflicting responses on that. And you're right that the real proof will be the next time there is a Linda Berger whose daughter dies in the way that her daughter did what will happen if they try to bring that suit or will they simply be discouraged from bringing it in the first place? I do want to bring up when we're talking about staffing issues, especially in nursing homes, it has long been a contentious issue because in some cases, you're right, Brian, There, it's just there are lack of people available. Uh, it, you have people who are overly stressed. They're doing way too much work. But in many of those cases that I've covered, 
a lot of it has come back to ownership groups sometimes deliberately keeping staffing low or staffing is low because the wages are so low. And especially in some of these for-profit facilities, there's an argument to be made that there is the ability to ramp things up and then they don't. I'm not saying that's what happens every single time, but we do have cases, for example, we have a lot of hospitals that are laying off staff and furloughing people. So in those cases, is there an ability to bring in more staff members, that is something that makes the layers to this a little more tricky. In some states, their legislation, their executive orders have specifically said that staffing issues don't count as negligence. So they've specifically carved out a provision saying if you're short-staffed because of COVID-19, someone can't use that to say you were negligent. And that's how they covered those bases. So the staffing issue is a really interesting component to this. And I think we're going to be exploring that a lot more over the next few weeks. And this, we do know, is an emergency provision that is set to expire. I believe it's, what, 60 days after the emergency order expires. So this is going to last through July, theoretically, if it's not extended beyond that. And we're going to have these coming months to see how this plays out. Uh, a whole different kind of immunity concern when it comes to COVID-19. Of course, we're going to continue bringing you more frequent episodes of Open Record as we cover this COVID-19 pandemic in the coming weeks and months. If there's a topic you want us to discuss, if there's something you think we should further investigate, please send us an email at theinvestigators at fox6now.com. That is T-H-E investigators at fox6now.com. Thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire. And for Brian Polson, we will be back tomorrow. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.